can God use anyone? Wait, 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 wait. don't give me the Sunday school answer. I, I want to know what you really believe. Can God use people who have messed up in life? See, I think most of us would get this question right on a theology test. If I passed out a test right now that said God can use anyone, you'd probably check true. He can use anyone because we believe, at least in theory, that all have sinned. Romans 3 verse 22 says there is no difference. There is no difference for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. We know that earlier in chapter 3 of verse 10 it says, There is no one righteous, no, not one, not even one. Isaiah 53 says, We all, that includes all of us here, all like sheep have gone astray, each has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him, that is Jesus, the iniquity of us all. In theory, we all believe the ground is level around the cross. We assert our affirmation of that. And yet, we buy into what I might call the pedestal syndrome. And the pedestal syndrome is just this. We, we kind of actually kind of practically believe, even though theoretically we get the right answer, in our practical life, we kind of believe God only uses the smart people. God only uses the educated people. And those aren't always the same people. Uh, uh, God uses the, the good-looking people or the trim people or the financially sound people with no credit card debt. God only uses the people who, who, who never had a bad thought when somebody cut them off in traffic. Or, or, or God only uses people who never made a mistake or whose shoes are always shined. The problem with that, when you believe that, is you start getting judgmental of other people when God starts using people who, lo and behold, aren't perfect. But that's not the worst thing. That's not the worst thing. The worst thing is that it paralyzes us to believe that God can use us. So I want to tell you a story this morning. I'm not going to so much preach as tell you a story of the most unlikely person you could ever imagine that Jesus would use. In fact, he wasn't just unlikely, he was shockingly inappropriate by our standards for Jesus to ever use. And Jesus not only ignores us on that, but he sends him to be the first apostle to the Gentiles probably not the person you're thinking of. If you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 5. Let's look at this story. You can follow along in the story. Now, the context for Mark chapter 5 is Mark chapter 4. This is very deep. Please try to keep up, okay? This is really, really deep. If you're a visitor here, we don't like to brag, but we're highly intelligent here. You've already noticed we're very good looking. Not only are we good looking, we're very intelligent, so please try to keep up. The context of Mark 5 is Mark chapter 4, and at the end of Mark 4, Jesus gets in a boat with his disciples, and they're going across the lake, and a storm pops up, and Jesus is asleep in the boat. And the disciples are like, Jesus, we can ready to die, and you're sleeping. They wake him up, and they say, don't you care if we die? You ever been there? You ever had a storm in your life and it feels like Jesus is sleeping it out while you're, you're about to die? Don't you even care? And Jesus, they wake him up and he, and he says, okay. He's like, why, why do you have so little faith? He calms the storm. And here's what verse 41 says. They were terrified. Now, when the storm was going, they were scared. He, he calms the storm. Now they're terrified and ask each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. And the, the story there is supposed to teach us that Jesus has authority over nature. 
and they're on this ship, okay, on this boat, and they get to the other side. They're just, they're still, they're terrified. That's the context. They're terrified because Jesus has just demonstrated he has authority over nature, and he's about to demonstrate his authority over supernature or the supernatural. And that's what happens in chapter 5, verse 1. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. Remember, they're, they're still freaked out here. They're terrified because Jesus just demonstrated his strength. Now, the, the reason this is an important thing is that this, the Gerasenes, is, is an area known as the Decapolis, which is a non-Jewish area. This is a Gentile area that Jesus is going to, and that's very important. It's going to come up in the story. And I want you to see three things in the story that's going to help us understand how and why God can use anybody. The three things are, I want you to see the man, the miracle, and the mission. The man, the miracle, and the mission. And if you will just let those three things in, it may change how you see things that happen in your life and whether or not God can use you or anybody else for that matter. Because what we're going to discover in this story is that Jesus welcomes, he heals, and he uses broken people. In fact, we're going to discover that's the only kind of people God uses. Because that's the only kind of people there are. So, so if, you, if you're here today and you're like, I, I feel kind of broken, or I have been broken. You came to the right place! So first, let's see of the man. I want you to meet this man. Uh, Mark chapter 5, look at verse 2. When Jesus got out of the boat, remember the disciples are terrified. Jesus gets out of the boat. He's just calmed the storm. A man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs. That's the second time we're told he lives in the tombs. And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs, there's the tombs a third time, in the hills, he would cry out. And he would cut himself with stones. Now, I want you to meet this guy. First thing, as soon as Jesus gets out of the boat, this guy comes running up to him. And the first thing we recognize is this. We are not told his name. We don't know his name. He's, he's faceless. And if you've been around New Life Church for a while, you know that if you're reading along in the Gospels and somebody encounters Jesus and we're not told his name or her name, we are invited. That means they're a faceless person. We're invited to put our face on there and encounter Jesus for ourselves in the story. So that's what Mark's doing. He's inviting you to encounter Jesus through this guy's story. Second thing we learn about this guy is he has a demon. Or, as we're going to learn later in the story, more than one, perhaps even thousands. But the story isn't about the demon. He lives in the tombs. We're told that three times. And whenever you're reading the Gospels and they say something three times, it's pretty important. It means he's living in a place of death. He is isolated, which is what Satan always tries to do to us. Isolate us. In Luke's version of the story, which happens in Luke chapter 8, he tells us the guy was naked. Now, Mark doesn't say that at the beginning, but when you get to the end of the story, Mark says he was clothed, implying that he hadn't been clothed previously. So Luke just says, I'm just going to say it. The dude, the brother was running around naked. Sometimes the Gospels are rated R on occasion. No one could subdue him. 
The, the Greek word actually is tame him, and, and, but, the, but the English translators don't do that because that makes it sound like he's an animal, like people were treating him as an animal. But that's exactly what's happening. He, he, he's so tormented that people quit seeing him as a person. Night and day, he cries out, which means he's in constant anguish. Night and day, not just at night, constant torment. There is no break for this guy. You ever felt like Satan was all over? He, just, he couldn't even get, like, take a minute to breathe? He's cutting himself with stones. Which, by, by the way, just side note here, if you have any feelings of self-destruction or self-loathing, those are not from Jesus. That, that, that's the devil's work. The devil wants to destroy you. The, Satan wants to destroy your spouse, your marriage, your kids, your church. That's who he is. It's what he does. He destroys. And the text says nobody can help him. Nobody, no, 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 no doctors, no counselors, no rabbis, no friends, no magicians, nobody. This is an unsolvable problem. This is a, this is a hopeless man in a hopeless situation. I just wonder if there's anybody here who, who feels hopeless today about something. Keep reading in the story. The text says that he has some kind of superhuman strength, right? Because the, the, the guy can tear chains apart. It, it reminds, if you read the story, it reminds you, doesn't it, of that old Faustian legend, you know, where the guy sells his soul to the devil and he gets power in return. So this guy, he, he's demonized, and he, but he has some super strength. He, he gets some power out of it, but he is a slave. I want you to notice something. That is always the way it is with the devil. Every Faustian trade will end up making you a slave. I mean, if you make work your God, if you say, I'm not, Yahweh's not my God, work is my God, you know what? That's going to give you some power. You're going to have some power because you're probably going to work harder than anybody else because you're not just working for, to make money. You're working for your God now. And, and you might work harder. You might stay up later. You might get up earlier. You might sacrifice your health. You might sacrifice your family for that God. You might get a little power, but at the same time, you're a slave. Don't think you're free. That's how every trade with the evil one is. You get a little power, but you're a slave. So let's re- review what we have so far. Just, you know, aren't you glad you came to church to be encouraged this morning? Okay, here's what we have so far. We got a man who is nameless, naked, or as they say in the country, naked. He's demonized. He's living in the tombs. He is isolated. He is self-destructive. He is in constant anguish, a hopeless man in a hopeless situation. Now, what if I told you, this is like ESPN 30 for 30. What if I told you this was the first apostle to the Gentiles? What would you say? I mean, would you be like, we'd be like, okay, Tim, I think you're kind of stretching the text a little bit. I don't feel like he's qualified. I mean, that's one of the, I don't know if you know this, but one of our requirements to come to New Life Church is wear, wear clothes. I mean, that's like, we don't have a lot of requirements, but that's one of them. Verse 6. When he saw Jesus. Now, the funny thing about the text from here on out, when it says he, we're not 100% sure if it means the demon or the dude. When he 
saw Jesus. Oh, that we would see Jesus today. I, I, I want us to be like that. You know, the Greeks that came to Philip in John chapter 12 and said, we would see Jesus. That, that's what we want to be. We want to see Jesus. Because when, when this, whether it's the demon or the dude, when they saw Jesus, look at the rest of the sentence. From a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. Now, just notice here, whether it's the demon or the dude, if you really see Jesus, the real Jesus, you will fall on your knees in front of him. Whether you're a demon or a dude. Or a dudette. Verse 7. He shouted at the top of his voice. What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Swear to God you won't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, come out of this man, you evil spirit. Now, don't miss the irony here, okay? Mark loves, you know what you ought to do? You ought to just sit down and read through the gospel of Mark and see all the irony. Mark and literarily, he loves irony because just a few verses ago, his own disciples are going, who is this guy? The winds and the waves obey him. A demonized walks out, guy walks out and says, you're the holy one of God. In fact, this happens over and over in the gospel of Mark. In fact, I want to show you a chart uh, that we put it the other, that we stole actually from another commentary, but uh, to put it up here for you. This goes back and forth where uh, the demons will say who Jesus is and the humans just don't get it. They're like scratching their head. So in, in chapter one, I know who you are. Zeman says, you're the holy one of God. Three verses later, a human goes, what is this? A new teaching and with authority. I don't get it. Right? The demon just told you who he was. Then just a few verses later, he would not let the demon speak because they knew who he was. Just a few verses later, what does this fellow talk like that? Why does he talk? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive God but, who sins but God alone? The demon just told you he was God. Or, or verse 11 of chapter 3, you are the son of God. We get to the end of chapter 4. Who is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. Then we get to our story today. What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the, but not just the son of God, but son of the most high God. A few verses later, isn't this the carpenter? Like, like, isn't that, and his brothers over there and his sister over here, like, who is this? You know what? Sometimes we don't see what's right in front of us. Even at church. Verse 9. When Jesus, then Jesus asked him, what is your name? My name is Legion. I hear it like, Legion. He replied, for we are many. By the way, just a note here. When he says Legion, all of Mark's readers in the first century and second century, their minds, whether they're Jewish or non-Jewish, their minds go to Rome. When he says Legion, a legion is a group of, what, 6,000 soldiers. So they're like, what they, that's a the word Legion was used by the Romans. So when they hear that, they hear Roman overlord power. And he begged Jesus, and again, we don't know if this is the man or the demon, begged Jesus again and again not to send them, that's the demons, out of the area. So I want you to see the miracle here. That was the man. We met the man. I want you to see the miracle here because Jesus doesn't leave people the way he found them. You may feel like this guy in this text this morning. Or maybe you don't feel like, maybe maybe when you're reading this text, you see your kid. 
or your parent. Maybe when you read the text, you, you, that coworker or that neighbor that you've been praying, you, you see them here. Here's what I want you to see. Jesus doesn't leave them the way he found them. He's transformed. He's changed. He's made new. And guess what? Jesus can change you. Or your kid. Or your neighbor or your parent. Verse 11. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission and the evil spirits came out of the dude and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Now, almost immediately, when we postmodern readers read that, we think this, don't we? What's with the pigs? I mean, we kind of feel sorry for the cute little pigs. Cute little pigs. I mean, who did they hurt? They're just, you know, like on the, on, the, on the side of the hill. And the reason we think that is because we come from a culture that has piglet. Who wouldn't love piglet? From Winnie the, raise your hand if you know piglet from Winnie the Pooh. Okay, even the kids. Yes! We love Piggy. We come from a culture that has Miss Piggy. <laughs> Even if you don't like her, you got to respect her. Right? We come from a culture that has Porky Pig. You remember Porky Pig? Okay. And then one of the classic films in cinematic history. Babe. Come on, tell the truth. How many people saw this movie and you love Babe? Yes, you do. See, we, we, our culture has all of those. So uh, in our hearts, we don't feel a strong aversion to pigs. But Mark's Jewish readers would have had a visceral reaction that would have evoked cheers rather than tears. Now, to just understand that, just think of it this way. Imagine Jesus saying, having a, a legion of demons come out of a man, and he sent them into a pack of rabid rats who had the bubonic plague. And then they ran down the hill and drowned themselves. Are you so upset now? No, not, not really. Or what, what if he sent them into a nest of venomous snakes? And they went. <laughs> Are you really sad at this point? Are you even asking the question, what about cute little cobras? I mean, no, yes. But it's worse than that. Do you see the, the Roman legion in this area? We're told historically had a flag that they would carry. And on the flag was... A wild boar. It's worse than that. Because during the Maccabean revolt, during the Seleucid rule, when the, the, the Judas Maccabeus and his brothers rose up to fight, you may have read this story before, it's where we get the story of Hanukkah and everything. Uh, pigs represented persecution and suffering. In fact, there's a story. In fact, you shouldn't read the first, second, third Maccabees unless the sun is shining and you're feeling good because it's very depressing. In fact, there's a story of a mom who had seven sons, and they brought her in, and they said, unless you renounce your faith in Yahweh, uh, you, we're, we're going to kill your seven sons, oldest to youngest. And the way you renounce it is if you eat this piece of pork, you know, they have bacon or ham or something. Eat that, and they will live. And the woman refused to deny God, her God, Yahweh, by eating pork, and she watched 
all seven sons die. So for Jews at this time, pigs represented persecution. Torture. In fact, it was worse than that. Antiochus Epiphanes had actually gone into the temple in the Holy of Holies and had sacrificed a pig on the altar. So when a first century Jew is reading this and they see these demons go out into the pigs and they run down in the water, what they see is a picture of God's victory over evil itself. And finally, just to you know, add insult to injury here, these pigs are very expensive. Like pigs aren't cheap, you know, and this is a, a herd of 2,000 pigs. That's a lot of money. I wonder, I just wonder, I'm just going to throw this out there. I just wonder if we aren't supposed to hear this truth. All the wealth in the world isn't worth one human soul. We are that valuable. You are that valuable. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? You're worth more than all the wealth in the world? I don't know if we believe that. Verse 14. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside. Well, I guess so, right? I mean, you're, you're tending the pigs and they're all, you know, times 2,000. And all of a sudden you're just, you know, you're shooting the breeze. Hey, you know, you watch a game the other night. Yeah. And all of a sudden 2,000 pigs goes into the water and they're all dead. You're going to go tell somebody. I didn't do that. That was not me. And the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed. Notice he's not that anymore. This guy who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there dressed in his right mind. Do you see the transformation? By the way, uh, in, in the gospel of Mark, when somebody is sitting at the feet of Jesus, it's the sign they're a disciple. He's sitting there, dressed in his right mind. He had been screaming, naked, crazy, cutting himself. And they were afraid. Just like the disciples. Remember the disciples earlier? There's a storm. They're scared of the storm. He calms the storm. Now they're terrified. This guy was demonized. They're scared of him. Jesus comes in, displays his authority over demons, and they're terrified. In fact, if you read the Luke version, Luke says they were overwhelmed with fear. Verse 16, those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told them about the pigs as well. Verse 17, then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. Wait, 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 what? Leave? He, he, He just conquered a legion of demons. He just set a guy free and they're asking him to leave? Before you judge them too harshly, um, how many other towns have done the same thing? Have we ever done that in Louisville? Jesus, you know, you're cool and all, but it costs too much to have you here. Notice, the text says, when they heard about the pigs, that's when they asked him to leave. Not when they saw the demonized guy sitting in his right mind and, and clothed and everything. It's, it's when, they, when they heard about the... Now, we need you to leave. Because to these people, pigs are more important than people. 
They didn't care about his soul. They didn't care about his suffering. They were concerned with the swine because they were hit in the most tender part of their anatomy. Their checkbook. John Oxenham wrote a, wrote a, a, a little poem called Gadara, uh, AD 31. It goes like this. Rabbi, be gone. Thy powers bring loss to us and ours. Our ways are not as thine. Thou lovest men, we swine. Oh, get you hence, omnipotence, and take this fool of thine, his soul. What care we for his soul? What good to us that thou hast made him whole since we have lost our swine? Again, before you judge them too quickly, how many people in our culture and in our city want a little bit of Jesus? Until he affects their real God, which is money. Let's be honest about our city. Sometimes we put the bottom line ahead of people. Calvin Stowe was a biblical scholar of another age. You may have never heard of him. You probably did, though, hear of his wife. His wife, he, was kind of, he kind of lived in the shadow of his. He was a great scholar, but he lived in the shadow of his wife. His wife's name was Harriet Beecher Stowe. She wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin which a lot of people in our era forget was against slavery. The book was against slavery. It gets kind of used negatively, but it was used to denounce slavery. And they went to England. And, of course, England had abolished slavery before we did. And they went to England, and they were on a tour. And, 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 and Dr. Stowe was invited to, to preach on anti-slavery day. And he got up, and he said in no uncertain terms to his listeners that they were hypocrites. He said, which is not a great way to get invited back, by the way, um, and, and, and he said to them, you know, you're so proud that slavery has long disappeared in England, but 80% of the cotton picked by African Americans in the southern states is bought by England. He said slavery would die in America tomorrow if England would boycott its cotton. And then he went on to ask, are you willing to sacrifice one penny of your profits to do away with slavery? And the crowd booed him. It's a good question for us to ask. Are we more concerned about setting people free or the bottom line? <laughs> are, are, we, are we more interested in conquering evil or a comfort? <laughs> that's too touchy. We better move on. Uh, but, but that's how the people were in this text. Levi, yeah, that. Thank you. Thank you. That's what they're saying here. Leave our city. Leave us alone. Yes, you did a miracle, but the miracle cost us something. Have you ever noticed people want the miracle of transformation, they don't want the cost of transformation. I'm the same way sometimes. I would like to look like I did CrossFit. But I don't want to do CrossFit. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it's good if I did, if I did cross, if I looked that good, I'd probably preach with no shirt on. It'd be distracting. It'd be embarrassing to my children. So it's probably, here's the deal. I really would like the fruit but I don't want to do the work. Demand the miracle. Now look at this, the mission. Now listen, everything so far has been leading up to this crescendo, okay? This story is not about the demon. And by the way, you guys, Satan never gets center stage in the Gospels. You ever notice that? Now he's a player. He's in the drama. Make no mistake about it. Satan is there. Demons are there. But they never get center stage. Jesus gets center stage. Because they don't compare to him. 
And the story is not about the devil. Your story of your life is not about the devil and what he's done in your life. Your story is about Jesus. Verse 18. As Jesus was getting into the boat, because they asked him to leave. So what does Jesus do? He just say, I'm a son of God. I stay here if I feel like it. By the way, I made you. He doesn't. As he's getting, he's going to leave. The man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with Let me go with you. Jesus did not let him, but said, go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how much he's had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. Now, I want you to notice a couple things. Don't miss it. Don't read it too quickly. First, when Jesus transforms the man, the guy wants to follow Jesus. Tell us what happened. When Jesus changes you, you want to walk, you want to walk with him. But Jesus says no. And he instructs him to go tell what the Lord has done for you. That, my friends, is what we're called to do. Just tell people what Jesus did for you. You can do, you, you've got a testimony, just tell you. Jesus isn't asking him to write a 12-volume systematic theology incorporating all postmodern philosophical insights. Just tell people what Jesus did. That's it. You can do that. Second, and don't miss what's happening here. This is history altering. This changed the world. Jesus is sending this man to the Gentile area. Remember, in Greek, the word apostolos, which we get the word apostle, means sent one. So stay with me. Wait for it. Way before Paul was declared to be the apostle to the Gentiles, this man, who moments ago had no name, no clothes, lots of demons, screaming, cutting himself, acting like an animal... A man that you and I would have said, I feel like you're unqualified. He is now the first apostle to the Gentiles. Do you hear grace in that? Oh, Jesus is so unlike us in many ways. And the man must have done his job well, because the next time Jesus, you don't have time to go there, but the next time Jesus goes to the Decapolis, which is in chapter 7, verse 31, everybody knows Jesus is a healer, and they start bringing the sick people to Jesus because they know he's going to heal them. How'd they know that? They didn't have social media. They didn't have Twitter. They didn't have Instagram. They didn't have Facebook. They didn't have any of that. Apparently, This guy who used to have a legion of demons is now free, and he's just telling people what Jesus did for him. That's it. (laughs) You think God could use us like that? You think God could use you like that? Let me just close with this. I want you to notice how this story actually leads us to the cross. Because when you get to the climax of Mark's story, we're reminded of this naked, isolated, demonized man has pointed us to Jesus. And you go, well, how, how, how was that? Because at the end of the gospel of Mark, Jesus trades places with this man. At, at the end of the gospel of Mark, Jesus himself will end up naked. 
Jesus himself will be isolated. Jesus himself will be outside the town. Jesus himself will be living among the tombs. Jesus himself will be shouting incomprehensible things while his flesh is ripped to ribbons by the little stones in the Roman lash. This is how Jesus will deal decisively with evil. Jesus will take it upon himself so that everything this man suffered. Did you notice this? Everything this man suffered, the nakedness, the isolation, the living in tombs, the anguish, the cutting with stones. Jesus bears it all himself on the cross. He takes the full force of evil and sin upon himself. Why? So that we go free. So that others can be healed. We got some YWAMers back who we had sent out, you know, um, Hannah Jenkins and Nathaniel are back. And um, Nathaniel was telling us about some, some of the stuff that happened down at a conference they were at recently called The Send. And at that, at that conference, there were people who had, uh, they, were, they actually prayed a prayer of some sort over people who had wounded themselves before they came to Jesus. I don't know, cut themselves, maybe shot up, I don't know. And the speaker says, you know, you, you think God could actually heal the scars of that? So I guess they pray the prayer. I don't know. I hope I'm getting the story right. And then they ask them, whoever, like, your scars, your literal physical scars are gone, pick up your cell phone and turn on your flashlight. And he said flashlights went on all over the stadium. Like people who had cut themselves, and now you can't even see the scar? What? Jesus can heal like that. Now, there's sometimes he didn't. I mean, Jesus himself, when he came back after he was raised from the dead, he was like, hey, look at my hands, bro. Well, he didn't say bro. Well, he might have said bro in Greek. <laughs> Thomas, go ahead, put, put, your, put your hand up. So he still had, so sometimes the scars are there just to remind you of grace. But Jesus took all of that on himself so he could heal. I mean, scars disappeared. I mean, there ain't... With all due respect to all the Arbon business people in the room, Arbon can't even do that. So hear, hear, hear what I want to say. No matter what you've endured, no matter what you've suffered, no matter what sin you've committed, Jesus bore it on the cross. And you might say to me, you might be hearing you go, you, Tim, you, you, don't, you actually don't know what I've done. I don't know what you've done. I know what I've done. And I know what Jesus did. He absorbed it into himself. All of your sin, all of your suffering, all of your anguish, he took it into the grave and he conquered it, but he didn't just go into the grave. He rose from the dead, he lives forever, and he reigns over all. And that means he can change a guy who was naked, isolated, demonized, self-destructive, and heal him. And then use him. Which means he can use you. 